to us. Good morning. So as Andy mentioned, we are in the middle of a series we're calling Your Kingdom Come, and we're looking at what does God's kingdom look like? Now this is really, really important because actually we are a missional church. Can I hear a whoop whoop for that? Okay, thank you. Yeah, great. We are a missional church. We have missional communities. We seek to be missional in our personal lives. Some people have been going out on the streets, talking to people to see who is it on the streets who's interested, maybe has never had a chance to hear about Jesus. And the logical consequence of that is that if people do want to find out about Jesus, they say, well, what difference does it make? Why does it matter if I follow Jesus? What will my life look like? What will be the logical follow-on from giving my life to Jesus? And Jesus answered that question when he came in his earthly ministry and he called it the kingdom of God. So we're looking at your kingdom come and we've been looking at what the kingdom looks like in the Old Testament. It's not like we have two separate gods, one for the old, one for the new. It's one God, but what is um, there in the Old Testament is perfectly revealed in Jesus Christ in the New Testament. So we're now moving on to looking at particularly the New Testament. What does the kingdom look like in the New Testament? How does it affect the world around us and how does it affect us personally? And that's where we're going. And uh, we had a bit of an intro a couple of weeks back. Last week, Steve was speaking about generosity and how it affects us there. Today, I'm going to be talking about freedom. So here we go. The King and the Father, radical freedom in the kingdom of God. I want to look at the kingdom of God through two filters today. I don't know what you think of when I say the word filter. If you're a coffee addict, you think that's great. Perhaps not as good as if you have um, one of those fancy machines. Uh, but filtering can sound a little bit like you're kind of picking and choosing. What you're, that's not what we're after this morning. But filters can also take out noise so that you can see something you wouldn't otherwise have seen. Photographers know this. So this photo here, you can't see what's under the water because there's all this glare coming off the water. There's reflection coming off the water. But if you stick on something called a CPL, a circular polarizing lens, it cuts out some of the water that's some of the reflection, and you can see what's underneath. Can you see that? You can see the bottom of the lake, and you can't see the reflections anymore. And by putting on that filter, you see a depth that is not otherwise visible. And so today, I want to look through two different filters at the kingdom of God. And these two filters are God the King and God the Father. They're both there right there in the Lord's Prayer, aren't they? We start off, our Father in heaven, but then we talk about your kingdom come. God is a king, God is a father. And as we look at how he works through those two lenses, I think we're going to see some depth in what he's doing in our lives. Uh, we'll get more of an idea of what the kingdom of God looks like. Okay, so these are the two filters. What is the king doing? What is the father doing? Now, freedom is right there at the very, very beginning of Jesus' ministry. When he announces his manifesto for the kingdom, he comes into his home synagogue and he reads this chunk of Isaiah, and it says this, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He reads that out, he sits down and he says, this scripture is fulfilled today in your hearing. In other words, this is what I've come for. And right there at the very center of it, you can see I've highlighted it there, to proclaim freedom to the prisoners. 
Now, when you read that, I don't know if you think, you know, actually letting people out of jail. And interestingly, if you read through the, the Old Testament law, they don't really have a concept of locking people up in a jail in the Old Testament law. So I don't think that's what Isaiah was thinking of when he wrote it anyway. Actually, there's a different idea of what freedom to the prisoners means. If you look at um, the time when Jesus encounters, there's an old woman who's bent double because her back has been crippled for 18 years. And she comes into the synagogue and <laughs> Jesus heals her with a word. And she straightens up, and they, they question him because they say, it's a Sabbath, you shouldn't be healing on the Sabbath. And he says, should not this woman who Satan has kept bound for 18 long years have been set free on the Sabbath? There's freedom that doesn't just look like being let out of a physical prison cell, although maybe sometimes that's what's needed. There's freedom from physical oppression. There's freedom from mental illness. There's freedom from cycles of addiction. There's freedom from controlling habits. There's freedom from controlling relationships. There's all kinds of freedom that Jesus comes to bring. And this is the freedom of the kingdom of God. And it's wonderful. So that's why we're looking at it. <laughs> I'm liking this. There's a bit of responsiveness today. This is good. Hooray. Okay, so what does the way of the king look like? I'm, I'm really, really sure that God wants to put his finger on this because I didn't collaborate with Claire ahead of her praying. But the first story that I wanted to talk about was that of Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles 20. Because we're looking at what's the way of the king. And Jehoshaphat finds himself faced with this army. In fact, it's not just an army, it's three armies that have ganged up against him. Three armies of people who actually should have been their friends because they're descended from the same people. You read, they kind of split off in the tree of nations. There's Edom and there's Mount Seir and there's, um, it's gone out of my head, Ammon. There we go. Um, and these three armies have ganged up and are marching against them. And Jehoshaphat does the only thing he can when he's faced with a bigger army. He goes to his king and he bows down in the temple. And he says, God, what do we do? And God sends an answer. And I don't know what the worship leaders thought about this, but he says, put the worship leaders on the front line. <laughs> There's one for you, Jenna. Okay. <laughs> but he says, put the worship leaders on the front line. Praise the Lord. Sing this song and you will be successful. And we've just read what happens. As they praise, these armies all turn against each other. The king has stepped in in sovereign power and sorted out the problem. They do not even have to fight. In fact, he says that to them. He says, you won't have to fight. This is my battle. The king steps in in sovereign power and overcomes. And it sounds a bit macabre, but I think it's worth reading. When the men of Judah came to the place that overlooks the desert, they came to the place where they were going to see what was facing them. They saw only dead bodies lying on the ground. No one had escaped. This destructive force that had come against them, God had turned it in on itself, and there was nothing left to oppose them. We have a king who is powerful, we have a king who comes to overthrow destructive forces, and we must not forget that. <laughs> this is great. This is wonderful. What about the New Testament? Well, Jesus goes to visit this region called the region of the Gerasenes, and when he arrives, this is what happens. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of the voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high gods? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. In case you think this is some kind of primitive thing, way of looking at it that doesn't exist now, I've met people like this. We have a friend who escaped a secure ward at a mental facility. 
going through several locked doors, somehow was impossible to restrain because she was troubled by a demon. This still happens today. This is not a, some kind of thing that you know, somehow belongs in a primitive understanding in the past. We'll come back to that in a minute. So Jesus asked him, what is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him, and they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs, and he gave them permission. And when the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. With good reason. The king came in power, and that destructive force was cast out, and freedom came. I don't know if you find yourself wondering, why did Jesus negotiate with these demons? Why, why did he say, yeah, all right, go into the pigs? Well, I think, if nothing else, it helps us, doesn't it? Because it means we're not just thinking, oh, this, this man was just mentally unwell, and Jesus you know, said somehow the right words to him and calmed him down. If he was just mentally unwell, those pigs wouldn't have headed down off the cliff. There's a destructive power of the enemy at work in this man, and Jesus casts it out with a word. And the full destructive power is seen in that entire herd of pigs going off a cliff. Jesus comes with the authority of the king, and he speaks one word, and the situation is changed. I want to read you another story. This is a more recent one from a chap called Mahesh Chabda, who started off his working life at a state home for children with disabilities in, in a place called Lubbock in Texas. And he describes this story like this. There were hundreds of little children there, and most of them had basically been thrown away or discarded by their parents. Although they were officially wards of the state, in reality, they were little pieces of broken humanity whom nobody wanted and nobody claimed. The Lord said to me, my word says, if your father and mother forsake you, I will take you up. I want you to go and love these little ones and be my ambassador of love. So I went. I'll never forget the day I met a 16-year-old boy with Down syndrome who I'll call Stevie. Stevie was afflicted. He was a self-mutilator who was driven to cry out and beat himself in the face constantly. The staff psychologist at the school had secured permission to administer electroshock therapy to Steve for six months. This was meant to modify his behavior by giving him electric shocks any time he beat himself. They graphed his behavior over that time, and I saw it. He just got worse and worse instead of better. By the time I was there, his face felt like dry alligator skin because he beat himself continuously. Finally, the attendants tied his hands in splints so he couldn't bend his arms to reach his face. The only problem was that the other children in his dormitory ward developed a new game where they would run up behind him and push him so hard that he'd lose his balance and fall down. And since he couldn't shield his face with his arms because of the splints, every time the kids on the ward played their game and pushed him, Stevie would land face down on the floor without any way to protect himself or soften the landing. Most of the time, we would find him with blood streaming from his nose, lips, and mouth. Whenever I would come, Stevie could sense God's love coming from me, and he would put his head on my shoulder and just weep. And finally, I said, Lord, you told me you sent me here to love these children. What's the answer for Stevie? And very clearly, I heard the voice of the Holy Spirit say, this kind goes out only by prayer and fasting. 
To cut a long story short, he's teaching on fasting here, so he says a fair bit about that. On the fourth day of fasting, the Lord spoke to me and said, you can drink. So I started drinking water, but I did not break the fast until the 14th day, and then the Lord said, now pray for Stevie. When I arrived for my shift at the school that day, I took him into my office and said, Stevie, I know your mind may not understand what I'm saying, but your spirit is eternal. I want to tell you that I am a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. I've come to preach good news to you, and I want you to know that Jesus Christ came to set the captives free. In the name of Jesus, you evil spirit of mutilation, let him go now in the name of Jesus. Suddenly, Stevie's body was flung about eight feet away from me and hit the other wall of the office. When Stevie hit the wall, his body was elevated about three feet above the floor, and then he slid down to the floor and let out a long sigh. I quickly went to him, cradled him in my arms, and removed his splints while he watched with wide eyes. Then Stevie began to bend his arms and gently feel his face. I watched him softly touch his eyes, his nose, his ears, and then he started sobbing. He realized that for the first time, he was not being driven to beat himself. He was gently touching his face and had been delivered. And in that unforgettable moment, the Lord revealed to me what a powerful weapon he's given us to pull down strongholds and set the captives free. Within a few months, all the scabs had fallen off Stevie's face. He had begun to heal because he'd stopped beating himself. This is the king that we have. Now, we have a, quite a watered-down monarchy these days, don't we? And I think, personally, I think the queen is great. But in terms of what she does, it's much, much reduced compared to what we read about kingship in the Bible. So if you want to get an idea about what it is to have a king... In here, we're talking about some combination of the queen, the prime minister, the chief of the army, the chief of the police force. And I was trying to think of a good way to illustrate this. I don't know if you've picked up recently, there's been a number of raids in Oxford because there have been um, people holding other people in modern-day slavery. And this picture came to mind. This is what our God does. When he finds that there are people in slavery... He comes along with authority and he breaks down the door and he rescues them out of slavery. And if there's anybody who opposes him, he arrests them and he deals with it. This is the king who comes with authority and power to change situations. And there's nothing that can stand in his way. Jesus talked about this. He said that if you want to rob the strong man's house, first of all, you have to tie up the strong man. Jesus is saying, listen, I am the one who can overpower the evil one and rob his house, and set people free from his house. So this is our God. He is the king. I want to ask you, what is the king doing in your life? What are the situations where you think, I can't do this. This is beyond me. I don't have power to deal with this. And then let's say, what is the king doing there? And maybe what does the king want to do? I've put that second question because sometimes... Just like the police come with the authority of the government, sometimes God wants his people to come with the authority he gives them to be those agents of freedom. Like Mahesh Shavta here with Stevie. God could have just done it, but he chose to send Mahesh to do it. What does the king want to do? Where are the situations around us where God wants to bring freedom? And he's saying to you, come with the authority of Jesus Christ and see it change. So that's filter number one. What is the king doing? 
Ask that question of yourself. What is the king doing? What does he want to do? But there's then the question of what do you do with that freedom, isn't there? And it's not just a matter of getting free, but it's a matter of then staying free. There's a heartbreaking story from um, Jackie Pullinger in Hong Kong where God calls her to sell her one treasure possession. She's an oboe player. And the only thing she's maintained all this time while she's been in Hong Kong is that she still has an oboe stashed away, which is her, her one possession, her one valuable possession. And at one stage, she wants to see this girl rescued out of sex slavery. And the only thing that she could do to buy her out of slavery would be to sell her oboe. And she says, God, that's the one thing I've got left. And he said, I gave you my son. So she said, how could I possibly have held it back? She sells the oboe. She buys this girl out of slavery. Six months later, the girl goes back into slavery. Heartbreaking. Are we going to walk in the freedom that God gives us? This was a question, actually, that a whole bunch of pastors in the States asked themselves a few decades ago. They had a conference about it, and they said, we are seeing people delivered of all kinds of evil, and then six months later, they're back in it. What are we doing wrong? What do we need to change? And this, I happen to know about this conference because they made a book of it, and the title is Wrestling Dark Angels, and it was up on the bookshelf of the person who led me to the Lord, and I, I always wondered what it was because it was a big, you know, grabbing title. I never read the book. But actually, what that conference ended up concluding is we need to get people to own the freedom that God gives them. You might perhaps have heard of Neil Anderson and the Freedom in Christ series, all based around that. Do we own the freedom that God has given us, or have we just been set free and now we feel like we're free of responsibility? And so this is the second question, which is about the way of the Father. The King sets you free, but then the Father walks alongside you. I want to ask a question of you guys, for those of you who are parents. Um, I'd like you to wave a hand. What is the instruction you have repeated the most times to your child? Wave a hand. Yeah. Don't put that in your mouth. Brilliant one. Yeah, absolutely. Any others? You are not in charge. <laughs> Thanks, Georgie. Yeah. Any other suggestions? Stella? Get ready for bed. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Are you doing good listening? Oh, yeah, very good. Yeah. Any others? No. <laughs> what were you going to say, Ruth? Get out of bed. Okay, yeah. Probably calibrate it to the age of the children involved as well. But, you know, there is a sense that we, I found myself saying this the other day. How many times do I have to tell you? And I thought, oh, goodness me. I used to hate it when my parents said that to me. But you do find yourself saying, how many times do I have to tell you? And God is like this with us sometimes. He's that father saying, how many times do I have to tell you? You can imagine him with Abraham saying, how many times do I have to tell you? Do not say that your wife, Sarah, is your sister. For goodness sake. <laughs> the answer is at least twice because he does it twice. Anyway. But it comes up in other settings. God brings us back to the same situations so that we can learn the lesson that maybe we should have learned the previous time or so that we can show that we've learned the lesson. There's another good one with Abraham. God says, I'll give you descendants, but he and his wife can't have kids. And in the end, he says, do you know what, God? Let's do this my way. It was actually, I think it was Sarah's idea, but he, he has to take responsibility for what he did. He sleeps with Sarah's servant. He has this son, Ishmael, and God says, listen, that wasn't what I was after, really. And I'll bless Ishmael, but that's not what I'm after. I'm going to give you a son by Sarah, your wife. And then it goes on a while, and then God says, okay, has he learned the lesson? He says, go take your son Isaac, the one you had by Sarah, and go and sacrifice him on Mount Moriah. 
Now, Abraham's got a choice here, right? He can go, well, God's promised me descendants. I'm well over 100 now. There's no way I'm having any more. So, no. That's one option, right? But no, he goes there fully prepared to follow through. And it's only then that God stops him and says, no, don't do that. God brings him back to a situation where he has to trust God's promise to see if he's learned his lesson. And you know, Abraham had learned his lesson that time, and it's good. He'd learned his lesson to trust in the Lord. But God brings us back to repeated situations. I want to ask you, is God bringing you back to situations you've been in before and saying, have you learned the lesson this time? New Testament, what about Peter and his fishing? Peter, when, he, when we first see Peter and Jesus together, Jesus is preaching. There's a bit of a crowd, so he gets into the fishing boat, preaches from the boat, and afterwards he says to Peter, who's in the boat with him, listen, push your boat out, throw the nets out, and Peter says, look, I've fished all night. It's not going to be anything, but tell you what, you, you've said to, so I will. Throws the net out, you know the story, huge catch of fish, so much the nets begin to break. He calls over the brothers, you know, come on, come and help us get this bunch in. Peter falls at Jesus' feet and says, Get away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. That's his response. Now, Jesus walks with him for three years, teaching him, demonstrating the kingdom to him. And we get to John 21. Jesus has died. He's raised from the dead. Peter says, one day I'm going out to fish. And they fished all night and they haven't caught anything. Familiar yet? And then there's this figure on the shore he says, friends, haven't you caught any fish? Like, no, no, we haven't. Thanks for rubbing it in. Throw your net out on the other sides. Now, I might have recognized it at that point, but then maybe that's the benefit of hindsight. They throw the net out the other side, and sure enough, huge number of fish, 153. They must have sat down and counted it at some point. Yet, this time, the nets don't break, interestingly. Maybe there's a bit of symbolism in that, too. But immediately... The disciple Jesus loves says, it's the Lord. What does Simon Peter do? He gets off all the clothes that he doesn't need, jumps into the water and makes his way to Jesus as fast as he humanly can. He doesn't care about the fish. He doesn't care about the boats. He goes to Jesus. There's no, Lord, get away from me. I'm a sinful man. It's like, no, I'm going straight to Jesus. God's brought him back to the same situation. But his response is different because he's walked with the father who teaches him and gets alongside him. It's like God saying, like in this picture, now let's try that again. What are you going to do this time? Let's try that again. Now this matters to us, because when God brings us back to the same situation again, we can be tempted to go, God, why is this going on? We've been here before already. And that is a response. I think Jesus probably would say, oh, you're a little faith. I say this to myself as well. The alternative is to say, what's the Father doing? Why is he bringing me back here? And if we can get that father heart, we start to understand the purpose, and then we can get on board with the purpose, we can cooperate, we can learn the lesson. But we only do that if we see what the father is doing. Likewise, returning to failures, same chapter in John 21. Because you see, just a short time before, Jesus has been on trial for his life. And Peter's watching in the courtyard, and three times he says he doesn't even know Jesus. In fact, the third time we read that he calls down curses and says, for goodness sake, I don't know the guy. I never knew him. 
this is a massive moment in Peter's life. He's this, this person who he's, he's left everything to follow, and he really has left everything to follow Jesus. And he's come to the point where he's just like, I don't know him. I'm done. I'm so afraid. I'm not, gonna, I'm not even going to admit I know the guy. And you can imagine all this building up that Jesus has done. You know, you're Peter. I'll build my church on you. And suddenly he's like, I've just thrown this all away. Jesus brings him back to that point of failure in John 21. Because after they've come with the fish, they've had their little fish breakfast on the beach, they go for a walk, Jesus and Peter. And Jesus says, listen, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Jesus, I love you. Yeah, okay. They walk on a bit further. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Jesus, I love you. Yes, yeah. They walk on a bit further. Peter, do you really love me more than all of these? And it says at this point, Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? He says, God, you know all things. You know that I love you. What's the father doing? Well, it seems pretty clear to us looking back, doesn't it? He's bringing him back to that point of failure. Three times, Jesus, as Peter denies Jesus. Jesus reinstates him by giving him three opportunities to state again that he loves the Lord with all his heart. He doesn't bring him back to that failure to rub salt in the wound. He brings him back to that failure to see redemption and restoration. Do you have that hurt reaction when God brings you back to a past failure? Do you think, I don't want to go there? God, why are you doing this? I know I do. What's the Father doing? Let's put that filter on. What's the Father doing? He's restoring past failures and turning them into opportunities to grow and move on. He takes that hurt and he refuses to see it just cripple us. He refuses to see it let us shut down parts of our life. He says, no, I am determined to use everything bad for good. That's Romans 8, isn't it? He uses all things for the good of those who love him, even the rubbish even the junk, even the stuff where we screwed up, he can still take that and say, I'm still going to use it for good. It's not that it was good, but I'm still going to bring good out of it for the good of those who love me. God is determined to do it, and he is able to do it. This is the heart of the Father. He brings us back to repeated situations to teach us, and he brings us back to past failures to redeem them and to see us walk free of them. You see, this is the thing. Peter was bound up by that failure. There was no way that he could go and talk to crowds, as we see him doing in the book of Acts, and say, this Jesus, he's amazing, you need to leave everything and follow him, because he hadn't, had he? When it, when it was really on the line, he had denied Christ. How on earth can he speak with any authority from that place? He must have undermined himself so much that he could not have preached to a crowd, and yet Jesus comes back and restores him so effectively that very, very, very soon afterwards, he can stand in front of a crowd of goodness knows how many thousand, and speaks so convincingly by the power of the Spirit, unpack the Scriptures so wonderfully that 3,000 people say, yeah, I'm going to give my life to Jesus. What amazing restoration, what incredible freedom from past hurt and rubbish. Here's an interesting quote from Smith Wigglesworth, one of my favorites. Great faith is the product of great fights. Great testimonies are the outcome of great tests, Great triumphs can only come out of great trials. He lived that. <laughs> Do you know, when James 
writes, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. That's not wishful thinking, it's scripture. Consider it pure joy because we know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. In Romans 5, we have this thing of perseverance produces character. Character, hope, and hope doesn't disappoint us because God's love has been poured out into our hearts. So I want to ask you, what is the Father doing in your life? And what does he want to do? Maybe just pause, take a second. What are those awkward moments? Those situations you keep coming back to, you still don't know what to do in them, or you still feel like you're getting them wrong? What are those events in your past that you just don't want to think about because there's unresolved emotion linked to them? Perhaps you still feel limited by them. And in all of that, what is the Father doing? Because he builds up and he restores. He brings freedom and he helps us to walk in ongoing freedom. We've been living this out a little bit just recently. Um, You might know, some of you will know, we're moving house at the moment. And we're due to move into the new house on Monday. It's exciting. Um, all seems to now be on track. I say now because it's been a little bit of a walk. We were due to have exchanged contracts last Monday, and it slipped from Monday to Tuesday, and we thought, just as well, we've got a week, and it slipped from Tuesday to Wednesday to Thursday. And, you know, some of these things you couldn't make up. We had our buyer turn up to the bank to make the transfer of the money he needed to make, and he forgot his bank card. I mean, it's stuff which you, you put it in a book, and somebody say, well, that's just a bit unrealistic, isn't it? It's just been a week, and, and each day we've got towards the sort of half past four, sort of mark, you know, uh, we know everyone's going to clock off at five, and it's been like, God, you, you will come through today, won't you? We trust you. And we, ha- we, you know, we know God has spoken about us moving to this house. It's been really clear. There's been um, words. There's been provision. Everything has lined up. We're just sure of it. And yet, every time it's come to the moment when it's supposed to go ahead, and nothing's happened. And I have been forced to look at it through this filter of what is the Father doing. I'm glad I've been forced to, I should say. (laughs) But it has been forcing sometimes. It's like God said, let's try this again. Come on. And the filter of what God's doing. Well, I want to tell you two things the Father's doing, and maybe this will help you to think about what he might be doing in your life. The first thing he's been trying to teach me and has eventually taught me is learning that I'm not in control. You know, and that's a good thing. That's a really good thing. In fact, was it, it was either David or Emmanuel. We had two people getting baptized, and they shared testimonies about control. One of you two said that God showing you you weren't in control was a really good thing. It was you, David, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, we're not in control of our lives. We might think we are sometimes, and, you know, and there are things that can give us the illusion of being in control, like money or being well-connected or you know, having been born in the right circumstances or something. They can give us the illusion we're in control, and yet we're not. And God has really shown me that I'm not in control. And the other thing, and Caroline and I came to, different, came to this at different points in the week, but we did both eventually get there, is, do you know what? Even if everything went horribly wrong and we were thousands of pounds out of pocket, or even if the house move all fell apart and our vendor pulled out and we ended up saying we're just going to have to cope in this house for a little bit longer, even though it's not suitable, or... Do you know what, if it all went totally pear-shaped and we suddenly ended up without a house, do you know what, we're children of God and he saved us 
and we get to live in relationship with God, and, and all the rest is fluff compared to that. And we came to a genuine point of, do you know what? At the end of the day, we're with God, and that's fine. And on top of that, I know that there are those of you who have opened up your homes, and, and our parents would have done, and you know, I know there would have been provision in other ways, but we got to the point of realizing that really all we needed was the Lord. And so through that, that repeated situation where we were tempted to say, God, you're not coming through. I thought, you, I thought you spoke about this. Why are you doing this to us? We know that you just have to speak a word and all these solicitors will suddenly find that they have got a phone. <laughs> we, I, we were finding ourselves praying like that. God, why are you doing this to us? I thought you were faithful. I thought you'd spoken about this. And at the same time, going, look, God, we know you are faithful, but we just don't get it. And in all of it, God said, what's the father doing? He is teaching you some things and you need to learn them. And you know what? At 12 minutes to five on Friday, we did finally exchange contracts on the house and there was great celebration. But along the way, God had done something much better than a house. He had freed us from a sense of control and a fake sense of control that wasn't real. He had freed us from feeling like how good our lives were was hinging on a house. The Father brings freedom for the good of his children and he helps us to walk in it. And if we don't learn it the first time, he brings us back. He says, let's try it again. And if we don't learn it then, he brings us back and says, let's try it again. And he is patient beyond patience. He doesn't rip his hair out and say, how many times do I have to tell you? He says, let's try again. Let's try again. Come on, look, I'll, I'll give you a little bit more understanding. Okay, look, a, a little bit more. How about, how about you read this? How about you do this? Have a conversation with this inspired person. <laughs> do you get it now? I'd like to think that I've got it now. I'm sure that what I'll find out over the next, hopefully not the next week. <laughs> Maybe this one can be parked for the future, please, Lord. But I'm sure that what I'll find out is actually, I haven't quite got that I'm not in control. I haven't quite got that really all I need is Jesus. And there'll be another learning point and another anvil on which that will be forged. But in all of it, God is good. I don't know if you find yourself, Caroline is really great at this. People say, you give some good news and somebody says, God is good. And it's like, yes, he is. But do you know what? God's goodness is not dependent on you seeing exactly the response that you want to a prayer. God's goodness is far bigger than that. And it's just that our default expectation should be that it works out the way that we think it will. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are face-to-face -face with King Nebuchadnezzar in his full anger, saying, if you don't bow down to this statue, I'm going to throw you into a furnace. They say something really, really important. They say, our God is able to rescue us, and he will, but even if he doesn't. Now, that's not some kind of double-mindedness. It's like, we know he's able to. That's just undisputed fact. God is able to rescue us. Do you know what? Our, our default expectation is he will, because that is the most logical way to see God's goodness work out in this situation. But do you know what? If there's something we can't understand, but that he understands, that says that it's better for him not to rescue us, we still won't bow down and worship your statue. And that needs to be our heart attitude. God is able, and he will, because that's how we expect to see his goodness. But even if he doesn't, God is still good. And he is still worthy of praise. And he is still worthy of glory and honor and praise. God is the king. <laughs> I don't know if you noticed, I, I didn't prep Jenna on this thing about the king and the father, partly because I didn't know when I spoke to her about it, um, that that was what I wanted to preach on. But if you look at the songs we sang this morning, they're all about God being a father and God being a king. I'm not saying it's the only filter. 
that we can look at our lives through. But I want to suggest there are two really, really good ones. What is the king doing in your lives? What is the father doing in your life? I want to suggest for those of you who are in midweek missional communities, I want to suggest that when you're sitting around talking about what's going on in your life at the moment, that you actually consciously put these filters on. As you, as you talk about struggles at work or something to do with how you're parenting or a, a friendship that's proving difficult or whatever else it might be, just the stuff of life, maybe difficulties with money, who knows, the stuff of life that we talk about, I want to suggest put these two filters on. Don't feel like you're being the goody two-shoes for asking the question that somebody mentioned on Sunday. Because it, it can really help us to see those depths. You remember that photo at the beginning, to see the depths of what God is doing rather than just the reflections. So let's do that in our MC meetings. I also want to offer a couple of other responses. The first one is, if as I've been speaking, you think, do you know what, I, I relate to this thing of... God bringing me back to the same place. Perhaps a place of failure. Perhaps just another situation that you find challenging, which you keep finding yourself in again and again and again. If you, if you think I can relate to that, and you think maybe I need to just get a bit of perspective of what the Father's doing in my life, I want to suggest that you, in a second, just turn, talk to a friend and pray together. Don't miss out the praying bit. It's good to talk it out. It's good to hear what they might have to say, but then to pray together that you would have wisdom and revelation of what the Father's doing so that you can cooperate wholeheartedly and learn. But I also want to draw you back to Stevie and Jehoshaphat and say, if you find yourself face-to-face with a situation and you say, I am not strong enough for this, I need the authority of the king, I need that battering ram to knock down the door, tie up the strong man, and rescue me. If that is a sin habit that you're in, if that is a situation where you need God's authority because you are being um, somehow oppressed, if that is just a destructive pattern or a destructive relationship, whatever it is, if there is something which is bigger than you and you need the authority of the king, I just want to offer um, an invitation to come to the front. Um, Jenna, I wonder if you'd come up here with the band possibly and play again. And just as the band play, I just want to offer an invitation. Come up to the front. Somebody will stand with you and pray. I'd love to stand with you and pray. If there's more than one of you, then hopefully, then, um, then there'll be others who will happily pray. But let's see the king move in that situation. Let's come with eyes of faith and say the king is always about setting people free. The king is always about liberating. The king is always about coming to destroy the works of the evil one. Let's pray in faith that that will happen. So there we go. If you feel like you want to understand more of what the Father's doing, turn and pray with each other. Talk it out. If you feel like you want to experience the power of the King in your life, come up to the front and we'd love to pray with you. Let's sing. When you're ready, Jenna.